This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Most interesting show this week. A brand new book out entitled Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino Resistance. Uh, the authors are two journalists, Terry Green Sterling and Jew Joffe Black. A word or two, by the first way, let me welcome you both to the show. Thank you. Great, Great to be here. Uh, Terry, uh, as I said, you're both journalists. Terry uh, was a frequent journalist of the year, now a journalist in residence at, a, at ASU at, in the journalism school. Jude is a Phoenix-based journalist currently working for the AP. Okay, uh, let me ask you both of this. Uh, why this book and why now? Well, we, um, we wanted to document um, a story about this powerful sheriff uh, who gained world fame for immigration enforcement. And um, because at the height of his power in Arizona, he was um, known or reputed to bully or retaliate against his foes, few had the courage to stand up to him. Um, the checks and balances broke down and um, ultimately a Latina resistance rises up against him. And we wanted to document this story uh, and place it in history and, and just tell the story for so it would be available for everyone to read. Jude, is that your take on, was that your motivation as well? Is that a pretty uh, fair statement? Well, Terry and I met in the racial profiling trial um, when Latino motorists, drivers, and passengers had sued Sheriff Joe Arpaio, then Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And that was back in 2012. And we were watching this trial and we both felt as, as that case continued to take twists and turns that we were really watching a pivotal moment in history, in, in Arizona history, in Arizona's political history, but also Arizona's own understanding of itself as a place. Um, and wanting to tell that full story of how we got to this moment. And as we were writing the book, the story kept going. Um, so the book uh, takes other twists and turns we hadn't even imagined when we first set out to do this. Terry, I'd like to delve with you into a little bit of uh, kind of psycho history that's uh, that's implicit in some of the uh, first couple of chapters of your book, and that is that Joe Arpaio's dad, Ciro Arpaio, is himself an immigrant. And uh, do you think that played much of a role in his thinking on the subject? Um, okay, well, he talks, he talks about his dad, Ciro, being an immigrant who, who came to the United States uh, legally as he emphasized over and over again. And um, the, the backstory of this is that his, his father was a member of a class of immigrants, Southern Italians that in the 1920s were unwanted immigrants in the United States. Um, and so Joe Arpaio grew up uh, as a child. He told, he told us that he was taunted um, for his ethnicity by, by other kids. He heard all the slurs and he said, you just kind of took it. That's what you did back then. Um, and, you know, we, 
we often wondered why he, as the son of an unwanted immigrant with this kind of experience, uh, why he chose to uh, unleash his immigration enforcement against unwanted immigrants. And his answer was always, well, my dad came here legally. Um, but, you know, it, it has been called into question. I mean, his motives have been called into question. And one, one often wonders whether, whether how that childhood impacted his ultimate decision to, um, to go after unwanted immigrants. But his, his answer is, we asked him over and over and over again about this, and his answer was always, well, my father came here legally. One of the inferences that, uh, that I read in your, uh, in, in, from reading the story uh, was that a lot of his actions were precipitated based on a need for his father's approval. You implied that a lot of his acts were based on that. I, I remember the story saying that when uh, the first time he, he, he seemed to get his father's approval was when he was working for the DEA. And uh, there was a picture of, of him responsible for a major drug bust in Turkey published in the Springfield Republican, the local newspaper, and his father saw that. Right, well, I think, I think that um, as Arpaio told us, his father was, uh, his father didn't praise him much. And Arpaio chose not to go to college, um, which disappointed his father, he told us. And he, he then, he went, he got a job with the, um, ancestor of the DEA, um, and he went to Turkey, and he, as you said, he got in this wire service story. He was quoted in this wire service story as being, you know, sort of a hero in this drug bust, and his dad was so happy and thrilled. He took the paper around to his friends and said, look at my son, look at my son's in the paper, and um, since that time, um, Arpaio has, has sought approbation, has sought media attention. And, um, you know, the genesis of it was very likely that time in Turkey when, he, when his dad saw the wire service article. You know, that kind of stuff digs deep. There's a lot of us who spend our lives searching for our father's approval. I, that, that, I don't think that's that unusual a thing. It's very plausible. Uh, we're going to come back in a minute, and we're going to remind people what I want to talk about uh, is the case of P Patrick Hab, because Joe Arpaio is elected sheriff, but he's not elected on an anti-immigration uh, platform. Indeed, his first encounter with the issue uh, wins the approval, actually, of the other side, a, a, an often forgotten aspect of the story of Joe Arpaio which we will be back after the break with Terry Green Sterling and Jew Joffe Block when we return in the Think Tank in just a moment.
the Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here with journalists Tara Green-Sterling and Jude Jaffe-Block discussing their new book, Driving Well Brown, the story of Sheriff Arpaio and the Latino resistance. Welcome back. Okay, Joe Arpaio appears on the scene running for sheriff for the first time. And, and frankly, I will just interject my recall of it. Is Joe was coming in as the professional who was going to clean up a sheriff's department that just had bungled a major case that had nothing to do with immigration. And one of the first big cases he runs into is in 2005, there's an incident with a man named Patrick Hab. Jude, want to tell us that story? Yeah, sure. And I mean, and we should point out, I mean, our pile was sheriff for so long. I mean, he'd already, he, he came into office in 1993. So he'd already been sheriff for quite some time when he ran into the, the Hob issue. Um, but Patrick Hab uh, was at a rest stop um, on the outskirts of Maricopa County and encountered five men who were running into a car and he presumed them to be migrants and it turned out they were. Um, he held them at gunpoint and, and called 911 and said he was he had found these men and that he suspected them of being undocumented immigrants. And the sheriff's office responded to the scene and arrested Hobb. Um, at the time, Arpaio said, you can't you know, pull out a gun and wave it at people um, just because you think that they're not here legally. Um, Arpaio got a lot of heat for that. At the time, there was a, a um, an emerging movement that was very concerned about illegal immigration in Arizona, that this was right around the time that that Minutemen, um, that a vigilante movement was patrolling the border. And there was a real sense that the federal government had failed. And there was a push for local and state officials to do more about the border situation. And um, there were political cartoons and letters to the editor criticizing Arpaio for for arresting Hab, and there was a uh, all this fundraising going on um, for people trying to get help him and get him out of jail, celebrating him as a hero. And the county attorney at the time, Andrew Thomas, had run on a platform to stop illegal immigration. He uh, announced that he was not going to press charges against Hab, um, which was celebrated by this emerging movement uh, to support Hab and and do something about the border and, and immigration. And so in the end, um, Arpaio saw how powerful this political force was out there. And at the same time, the state legislature started passing new laws that had to do with immigration. And so when the the Arizona human smuggling law took effect in 2006, Arpaio emerges in partnership with Andrew Thomas as a very enthusiastic enforcer of that new law. And so we really see his pivot towards illegal immigration as being one of his main platform issues happening right at that time. Let's pause on that for just a second and consider that because this is, I don't want anybody to miss this point. There is a, a, a guy out in the desert encounters some undocumented migrants or suspected undocumented migrants, holds them at gunpoint, calls the sheriff, and the sheriff arrests not the undocumented migrants, but the fellow who's holding them at gunpoint. This is not the Joe Arpaio 
that most of us who, who, if you've only been in this town for the last 10 or 15, or, or even if you've been here longer, you, most of us, I think, have kind of forgotten this formative instance. By this time, Joe, when he comes into office, he is the toughest sheriff in town. He's the man of Tent City, pink underwear, punitive sanctions, green baloney, and a whole lot of other stuff that's, that's, that's consistent with the toughest sheriff in town. But he has no identification whatsoever up until, up until after this with the, with the immigration issue. And that's right. And he'd been quoted saying that he didn't, he didn't really think it was a priority to go after undocumented workers who are just trying to make a living here. That was something he was on record saying. He was very close with, at, for a time, with um, Mary Rose Wilcox, who was the sole Democrat and Latina on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. Later, they would become bitter enemies. Um, but um, she felt like he was doing a good job serving the Latino community in her district. She would often have him come to um, events with kids and play basketball um, with with her youth community center. So um, there were times when um, he was celebrated for decisions he made that were seen as being favorable to the Latino and immigrant community and was applauded for that. So there was a, a long history before this moment of a very different uh, set of priorities. Okay, that leads me to a question. I'll throw this one to Terry, but feel free to jump in if you've got perspective on this one as well. So Terry, do you think in light of all this, do you personally think that Joe Arpaio was generally driven by a zeal on the immigration enforcement issue? Or was he just playing to a crowd that he figured out was there uh, on this issue? I think he's uh, an, uh, an astute politician and um, a, a, a really, really talented populist. Um, and I think that he pivoted to wherever his base was going because he needed the votes. So um, that's, not, that's not to diminish in any way. I just don't want us to diminish um, the, the years, the pink underwear years and, um, and the, uh, the early years, the tent city years, because those were years in which um, his, he, those were the years in, in which the Justice Department was scrutinizing the jails and there were wrongful death lawsuits. And those were serious times. But then uh, as, his, as his base grew tired of uh, you know, being tough on, on alleged criminals uh, in the jails, then they went, to, they went to immigration and so did he. I mean, in, in both of these cases, there were serious consequences for human beings. So yeah, it was a, in my view, it was political, but that doesn't mean that there weren't very serious consequences for the people impacted by these policies, both in the jails and on the streets of Phoenix. And, and a point uh, we need to know about people in jail is that a lot of them haven't been convicted of anything. They are there awaiting trial and can't make bail. That's exactly right. The other half of people, and I don't know the exact distribution, there is a second group of people who are convicted of minor offenses for which the term imprisonment is, is a year or less. And that's, that's part of it, but it's also people who are uh, awaiting 
awaiting trial. We'll return with Terry Green uh, Sterling and Jude Joffe Black talking about Sheriff Joe and driving Rob Brown when we return in the think tank after the break. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Welcome back. We're discussing Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino Resistance, a new book, the authors of which are Terry Green Sterling and Jude Joffe Block. They are both here with us. Jude, I want to ask you the case that that, that sort of is a theme through a a multi-year case through uh, years of the of the of this uh, book Melendrez versus Arizona what is that case and how did it come about yeah well I'm so glad you asked because this case is really central to the book and it's actually the case um, that winds up getting um, Arpaio in in legal trouble um, criminal contempt of court charges and then why he needs uh, ultimately is pardoned by by Donald Trump in in 2017 um, and it all starts in 2007, after um, a man named Manuel Jesus uh, Ortega Melendrez is uh, is stopped in, in a traffic stop um, and files a lawsuit saying that Arpaio's immigration tactics efforts to to identify undocumented immigrants during traffic stops um, led to him being um, unfairly detained and and stopped and questioned and turned over to ICE. And so that case grows into a a class action lawsuit. Other um, Latino motorists, um, drivers and passengers join U.S. citizens who say that they've been racially profiled by um, Arpaio's deputies during immigration themed traffic stops. And that case um, goes to trial in 2012 and eventually a judge decide the federal judge decides that that indeed Arpaio's tactics did uh, discriminate against Latino motorists that there were constitutional violations and um, orders sweeping reforms and later it comes out that that the sheriff's office did not follow all of those those orders and we can get into more detail if we'd like to but that's what leads to criminal contempt of court case against Arpaio and um, and and the pardon. And yeah, well, why don't we go well among just to clarify, if I memory serves me correct, Melendrez was himself a citizen, right? Melendrez was not. The other named plaintiffs were. The case began with Melendrez, who was um, he had entered the U.S. on a tourist visa from Mexico. So he was a valid tourist holder, um, visa holder. His case was that he was picked up. Some of Arpaio's um, original uh, enforcement tactics targeted day labor work sites, and um, an undercover deputy would watch as a driver picked up um, day laborers and took them in cars and then would pull over the car as soon as it had a speeding violation or failed to signal. And then once the car was pulled over, ask the people in the car about their status. And so it was in one of these um, operations that um, Melendrez was detained and turned over to ICE and eventually released because he had that visa. Please do continue. And let's. this is a good time to elaborate, not only on the original case, 
But uh, this then occurs over a period of years, and there's evidence that Arpaio is systematically ignoring a judicial order to change practices. Right. And so, I mean, there were there were other kinds of tactics. I mean, there were there were these very um, like shock and awe neighborhood sweeps where Arpaio's deputies would would swarm neighborhoods and pull over cars for any traffic violation. And and some of the other plaintiffs in the case um, felt that they had been profiled during those sweeps or just in other traffic stops that happened on other days in Maricopa County. And there was such an emphasis at the time at the sheriff's office highlighting how many undocumented immigrants were arrested in certain operations and circulating those numbers that the allegation was that that climate had led to um, to all Latinos being treated as suspicious. Um, and so at uh, in 2011, in that case, the judge ruled that Arpaio's office did not have the legal authority to arrest immigrants just because they were undocumented or suspected of being undocumented if there was not a crime that they were suspected of committing. Because that, they are not federal officers, if I'm- That's exactly right. And so there was a time when Arpaio's office had federal authority through a program called 287G um, that was a, originally a partnership with the, the Bush administration. And it was really that program that really empowered Arpaio to really take on immigration. The Obama administration revoked that some of that authority once there were allegations of, of profiling and other kind of discriminatory behavior. Arpaio's office continued making immigration arrests, um, stopping that people who were not suspected of crimes, but perhaps a passenger in a car who could not prove that they were in the country legally, that person would be turned over to ICE or Border Patrol. That behavior continued even after the judge had ordered Arpaio to stop those kinds of immigration arrests. So that, that wound up, there were other um, court orders that it came out that Arpaio and, and others in his staff had not followed. But ultimately, the, the U.S. Department of Justice, federal prosecutors, prosecuted Arpaio for criminally for violating that specific court order, court order to the, when it came to arresting immigrants without the proper authority. The usual expectation is that one does not violate a federal judge's order. That's a pretty serious matter. They, and they, they tend not to take it lightly. One of the things that struck me living through this trial in real time in this town was how extraordinarily long a process this was. You didn't uh, violate the order and get slapped down the next day. This thing went on, I forget the exact time, but it was years and years and years. And even on the end, after the judge had collected evidence, I remember we were waiting for what seemed like the better part of a year for an actual ruling on this. This The wheels of justice turned, but they're incredibly slow. Right, well, um, this, is the important, this is the important thing about the Latino resistance, which um, in my mind um, serves as a national model for uh, battling unconstitutional policing, which is on everybody's minds in America right now. Uh, the first thing is that the Latino resistance had many prongs. Um, while some members of the resistance were fighting in the courts, other members of the resistance had, um, had organized demonstrations in the streets. And these demonstrations kept the topic 
of unconstitutional policing alive and fresh in the mind of the public because it was covered by journalists and it gave voice to members of the resistance. Um, and, the, and they also um, took to took to registering voters. So there were many prongs in this resistance. There were many facets of it and many different people involved. So it was- One, one of them I wanna ask you about particular, cause I think she's really, if there's a heroine in this book, it's Lydia Guzman. Tell us about her. Oh, Lydia Guzman uh, was an activist who, who came from California, had been galvanized by Prop 187 in California, which was an anti-immigrant yeah. anti measure in California. Um, by the way, some, just to interject, some people think that that uh, measure was so noxious that it stimulated the Hispanic vote to an extent that it had the long-term effect of turning Arizona or turning California blue. And it's a great true. point because um, Lydia Guzman moved to Arizona with that in mind and was kind of waiting for years and years to see if that would happen in Arizona. And, and just as a side note, when we spoke with her after the November 2020 election, she referenced that, you know, said, I came from California, I saw that happen there and, and I've been wondering when it would happen here. But could, go ahead. Could we, could we digress for just a second? Because I was going to ask about this specifically. As one who lived through this from the from way before Joe Arpaio, actually, the it, it has been said about the Hispanic vote for many, many years that it's always going to happen, but it never happened, you know. And and through all the years of Arpaio, it didn't, and there may have been a lot of work, but you just didn't see the numbers. For many, many years, I said, and if, if, if Joe Arpaio can't bring out the Latino vote, I don't know who can. The answer turned out to be, I think, Donald Trump. But uh, what's your take on either of you? I, I, why did that take so long? Well, I mean, let's be fair. Um, there were many people who felt marginalized and felt that no matter who the political leader was, that um, that uh, Mexican Americans got a, you know, no one really cared. And so they felt very marginalized, like their vote didn't matter. And um, the other point is that there were, we might have had a large Latino population in Arizona, but a lot of them were young and were not of voting age, right? So the, the, the issue was um, signing up and invigorating those voters who felt their vote didn't didn't count in Arizona because it hadn't in the past. Mm -hmm. And um, also waiting for this uh, new crop of voters to come of age, of voting age. So I and think it, that's what happened. And 2016 seems to be a real turning point in this, in that um, you have a lot of the, the grassroots organizing folks who've been mobilized to be against Arpaio, who've been working against Arpaio for years, really throw themselves into voter outreach in, in a campaign they called Basta Arpaio. And they say that their strategy was to go after voters that that the political campaigns and party that the Democratic Party would typically not feel was worth their while because they were so um, they were such new voters or in areas where people weren't voting or they were so it's such irregular voters and really go after them and canvas those neighborhoods and invest in those neighborhoods. Um, and so they attribute uh, their 
success to kind of going for some of the some of the communities that had been previously neglected by other waves of campaigns. Right. And and it was also I mean, Arizona uh, turned blue in the national elections, certainly not in the in the local elections. And um, I mean, all the local elections. Yeah. And it was a, it was a combination of the of this Latino voter turnout and the indigenous vote as well, because there was a lot of activism with that along with suburban and suburban voters and McCain Republicans. We'll pick that up when we return in just a moment. I want to I want a little more on the politics this and I have a couple of other questions I'd like to ask you when we return in just a moment for a final segment of the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Discussing the new book, Driving Well Brown, Sheriff Arpaio and the Latino Resistance. I've read the book uh, cover to cover. It is a fascinating read. We have the authors with us, Terry Green Sterling and Drew Joffe Block. And I want to ask Terry about Lydia Guzman is a figure throughout a lot of this. Who is she and what did she do? Well, so as we mentioned, Lydia Guzman uh came to California as an adult after she'd been active in fighting Proposition 187 in California. Uh, she comes to Arizona at a time in which there are some, just right after some very serious immigration raids in uh, Chandler, and she becomes uh, quite, a, quite a well-known activist at that point. Um, as Arpaio uh, ramps up his immigration enforcement. She ramps up her activism. She runs hotlines for um, people who've been ensnared in the raids or people who need social services. Um, And she also uh, is key, as I said, in gathering information for this Melendrez lawsuit. So she goes out in the streets and attends a lot of the raids. Um, This breaks her heart when she sees what's happening to families. Um, but very often she has no funding. She has a lot of financial problems um, and her, her family is stressed by her activism. So she pays a high personal cost. Ultimately, she prevails. And that is Lydia Guzman. Did she come here for the purpose of engaging in political activism or did she get here and then have it sort of foist upon her? No, like so many people, she came to Arizona either, you know, to get a fresh start in life with her children and mm-hmm. her family was here. So mm-hmm. it was a logical place to move. But she she jumped, clearly jumped right in. Right in, that's uh, Lydia. Now you interviewed Sheriff Joe several times for this book. Uh, uh, did you have decent access to him throughout? And, and particularly, I know you. a lot of your interviews, I think, weren't, weren't for purpose of this book. You've been an active journalist in this town for a long time. And a, a, a lot of those interviews sound like they were pursuant to stories you were writing at the time. Uh, once you were writing uh, the book, did, did, did your access change? And did you get access to him whenever you wanted it? We got access uh, whenever we wanted it. Both Jude and I uh, had had interviewed our pile before we began the book for other stories. So that informed our reporting, but um, Jude can tell you all the interviews that we had with him for the book and a little bit about 
Jude delivered a book to him. So I'm going to turn that over. Sure. I'd love to hear that. Because that that was my next question. (laughs) You know, did did he read it? Did he did he react to it? Uh, What was what what did he say? I mean, well, and we we interviewed him. um, I I would say that a lot of our interviews happened after he had left office um, in in the period after we had interviewed him as journalists before that. And then um, we were checking in with him fairly regularly in 2017 and beyond after he left office. Um, And I delivered a book to him um, a a little bit before it came out, one of the early copies that we got. And um, he he hasn't. I haven't heard from him since since then, but but you know we we chatted. We he actually gave me um, a copy of his book because he had a book that came out last October, his his third book. So so we uh, did a book exchange. Uh, but but no reactions. I read this and it's garbage, or I read you know nothing that. Um, I mean, he 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 said he was going to take a look at it. He thanked us for our professionalism. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of his perspective in this book. I mean, he hasn't he I haven't heard since he's read it, but but we did spend a lot of time with him trying to understand his his point of view. And and um, and so that is included in this book. Something I'd like to hear from from either or both of you on is the folks on the other side. What, what did you can you give us a sense of where they're coming from, the Joe supporters? Joe supporters, yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of time with them too because we really wanted their perspective in this book um, to understand what made Joe Arpaio so powerful, so beloved um, for so long, and and also why illegal immigration was such a, a powerful um political issue for them and why they wanted their politicians like Arpaio to take on this issue. So it was really central that we we had that time with them. Um, we heard from a lot of people who felt like their that their their ability to get what they wanted out of life was directly under threat if if there was unchecked immigration from other countries that resources would run out that that they were that immigrants were getting entitlements that that Americans weren't getting and and we heard a lot of that sentiment. Um and these are these are basically the Trump base are they not? This is this is the same group. Exactly. Yes. Any insights on what that tells us about our kind of political future? And we've got a minute to go so. <laughs> Well, I think the reporting in our book shows that really in Arizona, like the country, these fights over who belongs and how they're treated and whether people can keep coming, these are themes that keep coming up. And these are their cycles of these fights um, that happen over time. And I think that this that history has shown us that that these issues aren't likely to be permanently resolved. I mean, that we're going to keep fighting over immigration. Terry, you get you get about 15 seconds. Your your concluding thoughts. My concluding thoughts are we hope you read the book because we tried to cover both sides and it's available wherever you buy books. Uh, and I, I will endorse it. This is this is a highly readable, well documented. I love the way you put the documentation at the end so it didn't interfere. But or when you look at the whole fat section at the end, where every single assertion comes from, carefully documented, interesting story, even as one who kind of knew the basic outlines of 
of the story. I knew where it was going, uh, but I didn't know about all the people and fascinating portraits and a terrific read and a real contribution to our understanding of this uh, era. Thank you, Tara Green Sterling and Jude Jofi Block. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank with another topic of interest. And if you want to uh, reach me, MikeOneal.org has access to all the social media sites and email and the rest. See you next week in the Think Tank. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I've got to beware I think it's time we stop, children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on